Okay, team, this is it. This is the episode that I have been so excited to share with you since we did the recording, which is like a couple of months ago now. I am here to hopefully not introduce you, but give you a deeper breadth and understanding of my dear friend, Laura Parrott Perry. There are so many things I want to say about this episode, but the first of which, which is really important, is we discuss child sexual abuse in this episode. And so if that is not for you, just skip it. I will have Laura back on. We will talk about other things. She is a font of wisdom. She is a goddess of words. But if you know that that particular topic is a trigger for you, just be careful. Just know that that's part of our conversation. It's not all that's in this episode. We talk a lot about healing and we jump right in, which is pretty funny. So I don't even give you her bio. I don't even give you a whole lot of explanation, but you do come to understand how we know each other and the way in which we have a little love affair going on. There were 20 minutes at the end of this episode that I had to cut. And my hope is I am going to release those maybe as a bonus episode because it's a lot about writing. It's a lot about Laura's gorgeous writing, about my process with writing. It's great conversation, but it would have been the longest podcast episode ever for me. So I've cut it and just know that the rest of the episode I barely touched. I usually am pretty heavy-handed editor and I just didn't want you to miss really a single one of Laura's words. All right, everybody, here we go. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am your host, Megan Reardon-Jarvis, and I am the luckiest podcaster alive because I am here with Laura Parrott-Perry. And you guys, I could like make myself cry about this, but I would have started a podcast a long time ago if I understood it gave you agency to reach out to all the people (laughs) that you have ever been, you know, pseudo-stalking on the internet. So what I'm going to tell you about Laura is that I'm sure that we got connected through our mutual love, Glennon, who we both Mm -hmm. know. And I'm sure, you know, was on Glennon's page and saw you on Glennon's page and then came over to read about your stuff. I'm sure that, but I don't remember that. I only remember you being someone who I was like, oh my God, all the gorgeous words, all the goddamn time. So I am so excited to have you. What I want to do rather than read your bio, which we can talk about all your work and all your life, but people on my page are going to recognize you from this because I post this, which is a picture from where I lived in Taos for a month last year during the pandemic. And these words that just like held me all the time. I read these all the time and I put them on my Instagram all the time because I needed them so badly. So you guys who, who follow me, this is for you. These are Laura's words. Grief is not a problem and therefore does not require a solution. Grief doesn't need to be fixed or managed, cannot be hurried or made efficient. It requires no platitudes, looks different on everyone and takes the time it takes. In the face of losing a great love, deep grief is an entirely appropriate response. I can't read that without crying, Laura. God, it's just the truest. Those were the most important words when I was really struggling. Those are the truest and cover all the things that people do badly. All the ways in which we wound grievers, this covers it. It's like, here, just do this, think this, say this. 
and we're all, all the grievers in the world are going to be okay. So thank you for the words and thank you for being here. I just love you. And I'm so happy to meet you online today here. Oh my gosh. We're definitely going to cry today. I know it's going to be a disaster. And we also have our mutual love of Matt base. So, oh, I mean, well, God, that guy was yeah, uh-huh. you know, it's, it's so funny. I was just thinking like I could write Glenn in a thank you note every week for the rest of my life. I have so many dear in real life friends no. that were born of, especially those, the early yeah. days, the um, in the comments Chris. and all of that. I mean, I have like friends who are deeply in my life, like yeah, me too. person as a result of that. So I think it's such a, it's such a kind of a cool way to to meet people. And then also that, that those relationships that sometimes people poo poo, you know, online friendships, but some, some of my deepest, truest friendships were born in those comment sections. So, right. um, And we're not just name dropping Glennon, like Glennon has, you know, this, we're talking about 15 years ago that she had a teeny tiny little blog that, you know, she's written about and talked about. And in the comments before, I mean, I don't even know that I knew I was reading a blog because I barely knew how to use. It was the first blog I ever read. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was, you (laughs) know, this is a thing. She, she is a friend of mine that I went to graduate school with that friend just posted something. And I was like, I'm sorry, who is this person? But much like what makes her so magical now is that she was fostering a community. It was, I think 66 of us, for some reason, that number six in my head for a really long time. And then the, the platform blew up because yeah. of technology and because she wrote, she wrote the blog post about uh, don't carpe diem me. And, you know, then the world understood who she was, but she does have a magic around bringing people together. So, yeah. and a and lot I of writers, know. a lot of writers around her. A lot of writers, but I think what she tapped into is people are starved for people telling the truth. Yeah. We're starved for it. And mm. so I think that anytime you are telling the truth about your life, even if your truth bears no resemblance to someone else's, mm. you, what I firmly believe is that when you tell the truth about your life, you create space for other people to tell the truth about their lives and they don't have to have a damn thing in common with you. It's just that you create space for it. Like I think about like the first time I went into a recovery meeting the very first recovery meeting I ever went to, I hated everyone. I wanted to stab everyone in the oh, eye. Yeah. Like I've, worst, worst experience. Worst, hated. worst people ever. Do I not recommend it. zero stars. It was happy, clappy and Ugh. miracles. And I was like, this is some serious horse shit and I am leaving. But for whatever reason, I went to another meeting and I went to that second meeting and a woman told the truth about her life and no one tried to fix it. And no one like, no one did that hardship Olympics thing. They were like, well, I, you know, they want to out suffer you or whatever the hell people do. There was none of that. There was just like that holding space and like that reverence for someone telling the truth about their life. And I was like, I don't know if I can stop drinking, but I want this, whatever oh, the hell this is, so I want this. Good. You know, that is, I want, I just want to keep talking about this because even though I haven't really told anyone who you are, or what you do, I want to just keep going with what does the truth do for us? And what is, what is it that, that transforms us with the truth? And I'd love for you to talk about your own experience. And I want to just say this, one of the hardest things for me, one of the roots of the PTSD that I suffered when my mom died 
was that the very first thought I had when my husband told me she died was it's your fault. It was like someone else's voice saying it's your fault. And it was such a, it was such a spot of suffering that I said it out loud to everyone. It's your fault. It's, you know, I think it's my fault. I think it's my fault. And I need you to know, and I say this to my listeners and my readers, I still suffer with that belief sometimes. I also know it wasn't my fault, but I suffer with that as the truth of my experience. And I was probably, you know, my mom had, had died and I was, it was probably five or six hours and I was reunited with one of my dearest friends. And she was like, what do you need? And I was like, I need you to let me fucking say this. No one will let me say it. Mm. I believe it is my fault. My mother died. And she said, and I wrote this in my book. I am so sorry for you that that is what this feels like. And I won't try to take that away. And I was like, okay, okay. And then I could just like breathe. Yeah. I could just breathe. Here's the thing about those, like, you can know it's not your fault and hold that right alongside totally believing it's your fault. That's right. Those two things can absolutely coexist because the distance between your head and your heart is a million miles. That's right. Right. And so, you know, I've been in places where, and I, and I wrote about it in the book that I'm writing now, I I've been in a place where I was in such a dark place and I genuinely did not want to be here anymore. Like I did not want to be here anymore. Every single night I was thinking about like, maybe I'll get cancer or maybe I'll like, and that felt reassuring to me. And I had all these thoughts that I work in addiction and mental health field. I know all the things. I am as connected and resourced as a person can be. I am surrounded by people in my personal recovery life and in my worker life that are brilliant clinicians. I have all the resources and none of that mattered at 3 a.m. None of it, you know, because, because that despair does not care what you know. It doesn't care what you know, and you can't outsmart the process of untenable loss. You will feel what you need to feel until you're done feeling it. And I, I mean, you just said how I often describe it, which is like, if there was ever a person who should have been inoculated from PTSD and trauma, it was definitely me. I read all the books. I do all the, I mean, I checked myself into the facility that I sent my patients to. If it could be done that way, you and I would have avoided all of the hard. Yeah. I mean, that is just reality. Yeah. And I think that, you know, but what you did in saying that out loud and saying it over and over and over again, is like dragging, was it Brene Brown says, like you have to drag it into the sunlight, right? Like shame can't survive that. And that sounds like such a shame yeah. statement to me, like there's some sort of level of like, I don't know, that's, that's how that lands with me. And I, and I, I know for me personally, I can't afford shame. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I can't afford it. I, I know, I know what that is. <laughs> and so what I've really learned for the most part imperfectly, right. Because I, there I was at 3am, but was, I know that I, when I have that sort of like hot, sick tug of shame, yeah. like that I recognize in my gut, 
as soon as I have that, I got to say it out loud. Yeah. Because first of all, lots of times those stories can't survive being spoken aloud. That's right. They no longer hold. That's right. No. Or, or you say it to someone who greets it with empathy and mirrors back, or, you know, you say it aloud and you realize like it's ludicrous. Yeah. The, the story you're telling yourself, you know, that can thrive in the dark, you know, it, it can't survive being spoken aloud. And so, you know, I think that you were actually taking really good care of yourself by saying it over and over again, even <laughs> if people were, you know, I people just have the wrong job description, like 105% of the time, Yeah, it, you right. know, like bless everybody's heart forever and a day, but it's just, I always think that when, you know, I always call it the tissue brigade, like some, you know, you start, people are just lobbing Kleenex at you and they just want it to stop. Like, and for me, that's always the hallmark of someone who's not done their own work. That's right. That's because right. if you have not sat still for your own pain and done that work, you other people's pain is unbearable to you. Yeah. Right? And what I've learned about that is those people make me furious. Like they get, they get Megan double guns where I'm like, oh, oh. oh, and, and right. And I'm like fast and sharp with my tongue and I can tell them about themselves really quickly. And, but what I, what I was thinking when, you know, when you were talking about the wrong job description and how people handle it, I I do a lot of coaching with folks about like, what do you need in this moment? And I have a best friend from when I was 11 who, you know, she, she just ticks a lot of the boxes for me. We don't, we speak a sort of secret language to each other. And what I know is that sometimes all I need is for her to know. Mm -hmm. I don't always need for her to understand. I don't even, sometimes I'm like, I will just text her. Like I am a shit show. And there's no explanation or I am suffering or today it's my fault. And that kind of like knowing about myself that I just need someone else to know that this is the way that I feel is in and of, in and of itself. I don't know that it's shame busting because I think that thought that I had about my mom was at least for me felt more like a distraction, like a smoke and mirrors, like a look over here, feel like shit about yourself because this other thing is way bigger and way harder. Feel like shit about what you couldn't do or you should have done differently because you know what? The other task is to learn to live without this woman. And so I feel like it was, it was like this, something really like a shitty friend (laughs) <laughs> who brought you, who brought you drugs or something where you're like, I get that you mean, well, it, it's going to make things worse. This whole idea that it's my fault, but I get what it's about. It's actually meant to take care of me. Yeah. And also sometimes it just feels better that it be someone's fault, even if it's your own, rather than like, this is just the way the world works. This is the you know? shitty reality. And like the I, I say it all the time to Matt, where I'm like, this is a terrible system. <laughs> I would like to complain to the manager. I would like a manager currently because I have so many problems with this. I will be an emotional Karen. I have no problem with that. I would like to speak to the manager about this very inefficient and and unjust process. It's terrible. Yeah. And I think I think that, you know, people have the job wrong job description because we are our society is built on feeling good. Yeah. And only looking at pain in the rearview mirror 
yeah. you know, and, and not sitting still for anything. Right. So, so I find that when people react to grief in particular, because I think grief touches on visceral fear in everybody. Yeah. Witnessing someone experiencing loss, you don't have to be afraid of that loss. You're just afraid of loss. That's right. That's right? totally. And so I think that when we, when we are in the presence of someone in deep grief, that job description is like either fix it, hurry it up, you know, make it efficient, make it cute, make it, you know, make it, make meaning for someone else, which we can't do ever, you know? And, and so none of that has anything to do with the person grieving. Like that is always, and people do it unintentionally. And I don't, I don't yeah. think most people me, feel mean harm, but they center themselves in other people's grief. All the time. Right. And so, and so we just do a terrible, terrible job of, of holding that space and just like, I remember, you know, when my previous relationship ended, I was undone yeah. and the people who love me didn't want me to be undone, but undone was appropriate for what That's was right. happening. That's right. You know, like undone was like, no, it would be weird if I was okay right now. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. I would I'm be as sure that would be weird. And, but we, you know, we, when we love people, we, we don't want them to be in pain, not understanding that pain is appropriate. That's right. You know, that's not something that needs to be fixed. What I think about, God, it's just really right. What I think about a lot, and I hadn't exactly thought about it this way. So if this, this might, I might have to tussle with it, but what I talk about a lot is like, you know, I wasn't a mom until I had Lucy. So I, I, it doesn't matter that I was good with kids or that like the actual becoming of a mother required the growing of the child. It, you know, for me, that's how I became a mom. I could have adopted, I could, you know, there are other ways, but that's how I did it. And nobody ever again, ever once was like, are you back to how you felt when you were 30? Nobody ever said like, are you back to normal? It was just like, you have a kid now. And, and when I think about the grief and, and to me, growing a child inside my body was one of the holiest experiences of my life. There was so little. And in fact, I have never been the same inside my body. Any criticism or disappointment. I grew kidneys and toes and fingernails inside my fucking body. I just don't have the like, I don't have the heart to be so mean about mm -hmm. it anymore. And grief for me has been the exact same way, which is like, I have been growing a part of me to carry this energy that I cannot figure out how to put down because I own it and it's mine. And it has been one of the holiest experiences of my life. Like I have, you know, I want you to talk about the mountain, but I have been you know, on the mountain around spirituality, relationships, fear, anxiety, my own mental health, like all of it. And so anybody who is like, are you sure you want to still keep talking about this? I really, now I'm not going to shoot them. I'm just like, like, I just need you to step to the left, right? Like I'm in a deli, you just step to the left so I can get to the counter because I, this is not a problem. What I am now, it's just what I am now. And that is what that feels like. 
but again, that's, that's someone who, <laughs> so what I would say is like, that analogy is perfect about motherhood where no, you're not the person that you were before you had a child and you shouldn't be ever. Right. And so I would say that giving birth, you know, I have two kids giving birth is a transformative experience and so is loss. Yeah. And so for me, it's like, I understand that it is more comfortable for other people Right. For you to bounce back, right, and bikini body back, you know, like yeah. like have your yeah have your have your like spiritual bikini body back <laughs> out on the other side of that's going to be a coming thing. Spiritual <laughs> body, it's definitely losing to core people. But I would argue that you shouldn't be on that. She shouldn't be the same person on the other side of that. That's not an estimable goal. No. You should be transformed by, that doesn't have to be a, a bad thing. Like great love transforms us. Motherhood is great love, right? Great love transforms us. So does great loss. And I don't think you can untangle love and loss. I think they're a, a package deal, right? And so for me, that's, that's, either someone who's not sustained a great loss or maybe not done the work around it. But that, that just strikes me as like people prioritizing their comfort over your well-being. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't, I don't get as mad about that stuff anymore, but I also don't. <laughs> I was never I was mad for it. I know? wasn't, I was never like boundaries are, boundaries are my superpower now. <laughs> That's also a good teacher. I, I didn't get mad as a kid very much because there wasn't a lot of room for it in my house. And when I went to therapy, I just felt like my therapist was like, ooh, what do I see in here? Let's pull this out. And then I was like mad for 10 years. Yeah. Like the kind of mad that like got you a full refund, the kind of mad that got you a new set of tires, like that kind of just righteous we're going to, this has to be right. You know, I know it's not your, your fault, but it's gotta be your problem. Cause I didn't do it. It's your company's fault, like that kind of stuff. And now I, you know, I think in loss because loss requires kind of like new parenthood so much energy. Mm-hmm. I don't have the energy to expend. I just am like, just, I just need you to move so I can get past. Mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not going to do the whole, like, let me tell you about who you are even though that can be fun and it's certainly fun for other people to watch. It's I fun. It's I fun in the way scratching <laughs> a mosquito bite is fun, That's right? right? Like it gives you that momentary relief. And then all of a sudden you're like, why is my leg bleeding? Oh, cause I'm ridiculous. And I scratched my leg open. And it doesn't can yeah. you tell us about becoming a truth teller in your own life? Can you tell us yeah. about how the, how truth and living mm-hmm. in truth has transformed you. I would, I would love for you to talk about that. Yeah. So truth telling is, is a, a recent development in my life to the, I mean, you know, I would say in the last 10 years, Yeah. I, I'm a survivor of childhood sexual trauma. And I learned at a really, really young age that telling the truth is dangerous. Yeah. So I was being abused by my paternal grandfather, my father's father. And I'd been going on for a while and my parents got, well, my parents separated and were moving toward divorce. And I told my mother what was happening because we were 
they were planning a trip for us to go back to our grandparents' house for a long weekend. And suddenly the the fear of going back to that was bigger than the fear of telling. Yeah. You know, it just finally the scales tipped. And I told the truth and my mother believed me and my father did not. And I lost half my family. So I lost my my entire father's side of the family. And so I learned in that moment that there is a very real cost to telling the truth. And I stopped doing it. You know, I just, I became such a secret keeper and such a liar and just was drenched in shame, right? And so when you're drenched in shame, you're not telling the truth about anything. You're just not. And so that was the way I lived most of my life. And my life looked fine from the outside. You know, yeah. I had a handsome, smart, funny, successful husband, and I had two beautiful kids and a beautiful dog and a beautiful house. And, you know, a series of events happened and, uh, you know, my marriage kind of blew up and I was undone. I just, I was undone in a way that I, I couldn't fake my way through it. And so I started really drinking and I'd always had a problem with alcohol. Like I, I had my first drink at 11. And I drank myself into a blackout that night and woke up the next morning and it was clear bad things had happened and I couldn't wait to do it again because it felt like a gift from God. It felt like a solution, not a problem. And so I had never had a normal relationship, but I had been very, very careful for a very long time. And then when I sort of got this news about my marriage, I stopped being careful. I sort of had this, like, if this is the way it's going to be, then I just don't fucking care. I'm just, I'm just going to. And so I drank the way I had probably always wanted to. And so I had four years of just really catastrophic drinking. But when I was going through my divorce, I kind of started like posting nobody, nobody going through a divorce should have a social media account. <laughs> nobody going through a divorce should have access to a phone. phone. People like, can call you, but you shouldn't be able to call down, go yeah. do your work, come back right. and you can get the That's keys right. to Instagram. I started, you know, I'd always been a writer. And so I started kind of writing posts that sort of like edged up against the truth. They weren't the truth, or at least they were like, you know, like finally picked items of truth that left out a lot yeah. of it. Truth. They were, they were truth adjacent, Megan. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> they, were, they were right up against the truth. Um, and, and actually, you know, a lot of that was around like being involved in the comments section on Glennon's blog and like getting to know these people and finding people that were like hungry for that truth. And so I would post things and, you know, people would really seem to respond. And the, the sort of further I got through like the dissolution of my marriage, I, I became aware that there had been this perception of my life that my life was perfect. And, and I had to, you know, it took a long time to a lot of therapy and getting sober to realize I was very complicit in that. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So like I had like packaged my life in such a way that it was very shiny and very attractive and looked great. And when I started sort of having to own the fact that like, oh, gee, you know, it's all not actually Camelot. <laughs> we seem to be getting a divorce. I found that those posts sort of really resonated with people and I had people reaching out to me. And so it's a, it's a long story, but I, I had lost my father's whole side of the family when I told the truth and included in that was my cousin, Mary, who I'd been very close with when I was young. And so I, you know, I was 
an active alcoholic and really just not in a good place. But I decided to start blogging, which we can all agree is like a terrific life choice. It's just can't, can't recommend it highly enough. And uh, the writing is good though. <laughs> it may not be true, but it's good. I've read no, it. Well, I mean, I didn't write things that weren't true. I just didn't tell the whole truth, you know? Right. And so in any case, so in, what was it? It was November of 2014. I got a friend request on Thanksgiving day from my cousin, Mary, who I hadn't seen in 35 years. And <clears throat> I was really nervous. Like, I was like, what does she want? <laughs> right you know, I didn't know what she knew. I didn't know what she'd been told. This was just like the whole big mysterious part of my past, but I accepted it and we reconnected. And I found out that, you know, in our first conversation that she'd been abused by my grandfather too. So in January of 2015, that January, I went up to visit her in Massachusetts and, you know, we stayed up all night talking. And the next day we decided to go dance in my grandfather's grave. And, you know, we, got in her Jeep and drove to the little town where we were abused and where he's buried and we got lost. You know, she hadn't been there in a long time to the cemetery and I'd never been there. And so we pulled into a police station to ask for directions. And uh, I jokingly said to Mary, because it was a joke, right. that we can file a police report. And uh, I've since learned, I don't, I don't make jokes in front of Mary. Anymore. No. <laughs> <laughs> So we walked in to ask for directions and, uh, you know, the, there was an older officer behind the glass and he started to give us the directions. And Mary said, I wonder if you'd humor us. We were molested by our grandfather 35 years ago and we want to file a police report. And I, I feel like I always need to preface this, especially as I've like learned more and more and more about the survivor community and different people's experiences. We had a unicorn of an experience. Yes, that's right. You did. Right. So we were two reasonably attractive middle-aged white ladies in a well-to-do town with a well-funded police department, low crime. The police chief had been the lead investigator on the Catholic church sex abuse scandal in New Hampshire. And this was a priority for him. It was a tiny little town and he had a SART officer, which is a sexual Mm -hmm. assault response team officer. A lot of big cities don't have that. And this was a tiny little town that had one. People don't have the experience we had. So it, it is, I'm simultaneously deeply grateful for it and also perpetually furious that yeah. it, is, it is a unicorn of a story. But in any case, um, we got shown into a conference room and a young officer came in and led us through our story in the most healing way. And, and so I think for, for both of us, first of all, neither of us had ever gotten all the way through our story before ever telling anyone the whole thing. We had never gotten through our whole story without having to stop to comfort the other yeah. person, which is such a shame reinforcer when, yeah. when, because it, the literal message is your story's unspeakable. It shouldn't be spoken. It's too much for people. He was very methodical, very kind. And, you know, the only, the only sort of like feedback we got, I'm doing air quotes, like people are going to be yeah. <laughs> The only feedback we got from him was at one point, I basically expressed my deep guilt that I had never given voice to, that I knew he had gone on to abuse other girls. I knew it in my gut. I knew it. 
and that I felt like I should have done more. And yeah. he just stopped and looked at me and he said, Laura, you were eight. You were a tiny little girl. And it was like brand new information for me yeah. that I was a little girl. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know. If, I think it's, and I, survivors say this to me all the time when I say it, that, that yeah. they had never thought of it that way. When you're little, you don't think you're little. No. Right. So you're yeah. perfectly capable of heaping massive responsibilities on yourself that have nothing to do with you. Like if I looked at an eight-year-old girl now, I'd think, well, is she responsible for like solving right. crime? <laughs> no, she's it's, not. That's a piece, not to interrupt your story, but that's a piece of trauma work that's intentional, which is when you're in the story to make sure that there's the adult version of you that that's caring for the child version of you and asking that child version, if they know how old you are now, mm. right. Do they know that you're not still eight? Because that's how we stay in our traumas from the experience. But also, do you understand, do you understand you survived? Yeah. And also to have the adults go back, you know, sometimes I'll have people bring in pictures so that they can physically see, or also, or I'll say things like, can you see that doorknob? A six-year-old is not as tall as that doorknob. Yeah. And just, yeah. you know, because when you're, in, you know, it's a movie, when you see it from your own perspective with your own intellect, you don't have the adults, you know, perception. You just know what you know in your own feeling. Oh God. Yeah, and, and particularly, I mean, survivors are great prosecutors for themselves, That's right. you know, and you know, Mary and I went on to, to form a nonprofit and we did writing workshops yeah. for a long time with survivors. And we would always have them write a letter to their younger selves. And we would have them bring a photo of themselves at their age of the abuse. And on our website, we have a gallery, a survivor gallery where people post photos of themselves at the age of their abuse. And it's like, there's something about looking back and telling that little girl or boy, like, what did you need to know that you didn't know? And what, you know, how can I reframe that for you as like the most loving version of yourself, like with this adult lens, because it's devastating when you hear survivors talk about like what they should have done or what they, you know, uh, it, it's, it's crushing. Um, it, and, and I say that as someone who did it, like literally my whole, right. my whole life. But so we filed this police report and it was this really amazing healing experience. And I went back to Mary's and wrote about it and published it. Like the, I'm a relentless editor. I didn't, I did nothing to it. I just sent it out into the world. Just. And, and it went viral. And that was a, a, an example of a hundred percent writing from a wound. Yeah, that's right. There was no healing. I had no perspective, you know, people always say right from a scar, not from a wound. And I think that, I think that there is real power in writing from a wound. I don't think you should publish from a wound, right? So <laughs> writing from a wound is, there is a, an immediacy and a rawness and a, a sort of you're present in the pain in a way that you can't recreate on the other side of it. Right? Well, you're, so, you're expressing the pain and bearing witness to the pain all at the same time. So when yeah. I talk to writers in my writer's workshop, what I say is you are bearing holy witness mm -hmm. to your experience. So it's very, in my mind, it's a deeply spiritual act 
to, to go into the pain. I mean, you got to be careful because in trauma, you can trigger all kinds of somatic responses sure. that, you know, you got to, you got to do it carefully, but, but I love the idea that writing from the wound is, you know, is channeling sort of this spiritual, you know, need for healing. And then absolutely hand that to an editor who will help you not yeah. be overexposed and not, you know, not say w- things that you don't mean because you were using your feeling words and not maybe checking them with your thinking words. And go do your, go do your work. Yeah. Right. So like, I think that, listen, I would not. So I, that post I wrote went viral. Yeah. I would not recommend that experience yeah. for an active alcohol. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, but I'd recommend it for anyone. It's a weird experience. But, but I was singularly ill-equipped to deal with the response to that post. Having said that, I wouldn't change a thing. Of course. Right? I think that the reason that that post resonated was one, that I was writing from a wound. Yeah. I was very much in it. It was real time, right? Yeah. But also that thing about telling the truth, like people are starving for the truth. And so when you tell the okay. truth about something, you know, it resonates. What that post did not have was an ounce of wisdom. Yeah. What that post did not have was any perspective. And what the writer did not have was any boundaries, <laughs> any <Yeah>. sobriety, because <laughs> right. I was not sober. And so <laughs> I did not know what to do with what came at me, most of which was sacred and profound and beautiful. And some of which was vile. Yeah. Right. And so I felt like I had to help everyone in real time, even though I hadn't even done my own work. Right. Right. I felt like I had to read every story that anyone sent me. I had to, and I just went in a, like a steep spiral. I will say it was a very efficient way to get sober. Like January to June, when I got sober was like, we wrapped it up, but, mm-hmm. but deeply, deeply unhealthy. And so, you know, it's one of those things where I say it all the time, like when you're on the mountain, you can't see the mountain. Right. Yeah. So that, that saying was born of an experience with my youngest. When we first moved out to Seattle, we were taking a day trip to Mount Rainier and we'd done all this research and we knew how big it was and you know, what trees grew there and the animals and we're all excited and we drove, it was like an hour and a half drive. And my youngest fell asleep. And when we got to the state park, got out, started hiking. And about like 15 minutes in, they burst into tears. And I was like, what is wrong with you, kid? And they said, you said we were going to the mountain. And I, when you're on the mountain, you can't see it. You know, yeah. you can see, you can, listen, if I'm on the mountain, I can tell you what the rocks feel like under my feet. I can tell you how green the trees smell. I can tell you what the fields of wildflowers look like. I cannot tell you how big it is. I can't tell you how you know big it is in relation to other things. I, I don't have any wisdom or any perspective because I am on it and it is too big to know about when you're on it. You can only know about it when you're farther away from it. And so, you know, that post was, I was on the mountain. I mean, I was like lost in the woods <laughs> on the mountain. And so I could, I could tell you very clearly what the pain felt like that I was in, but yeah. I didn't know a thing about what that meant for me yet. 
Well, I mean, there's so much again about your story that to me feels like, you know, maybe it was lucky that you went to that police station. Maybe it was holy that you went to that police station. You know, I don't know where I shake out on all of that stuff, but when you're talking about what it did to you, right, it's this rough and tumble experience that helped you get sober. Mm-hmm. And we can, you know, we can pull out the nuggets, but like, that was a, that was a hard way, you know, hard, you fell down the sheer face of the mountain in order to get what it is that you need in trauma work. When people are in trauma work, right. They come in, they knock, they say, here's the check I'm here to, you know, mm-hmm. part of what they're talking about is there's a dysregulation in their system that they're trying to settle. And we use all these techniques and tools. And I like to say this every time on the podcast, because it's not like, come in and tell me how you feel about this. In trauma work, I am not interested in your thoughts about your feelings. I am interested in your feelings and making sure they're safe for you. Mm -hmm. And so what we don't want to do is mess up. I think of feelings as like this little, these little like matchbox cars running up and down this super highway. You never know how many times the yellow truck is going to come by, but you do know that that yellow truck is fear. And our job in trauma is to help you navigate the yellow truck. Mm -hmm. And what can happen is you get inside the yellow truck and you are inside being driven by the yellow truck of fear. And so in, in the kind of trauma work that I do, we talk about talk, we talk about speaking for the feeling, not Mm -hmm. from the feeling, Mm. but I will tell you that my greatest life wisdom comes from the feeling that there are so many times and I'm much better at this at 47 than I was at 27, where I say, I don't know. I just know it's something Mm -hmm. I'll let you know when it makes sense to me, but I'm just with it right now. Like I'm just with the super highway of feeling. I don't know what it is where I know I'm in trouble and where PTSD has been in my life and anxiety and depression and all that stuff is when I'm in the car. If I'm in the car and I am not driving this car, we are not going to great places. So I appreciate what you are describing, which is that experience. While it is, I mean, it is a fucking gorgeous piece of writing. Mm -hmm. It was not a gorgeous piece of writing with reflection of healing. It was like part of the landslide that's going to get you to the healing. But there, you were in it. You were talking from inside the car, not about the car ride that you were on. Yeah, no. And first of all, I think that's so helpful the way you're talking about trauma work, because I think people misunderstand fundamentally what trauma work is, what the intention is, what I think, I think most people think they're going to go lay on a couch and talk about the worst things that ever happened to them forever. And so I think that keeps a lot of people from going and getting the help. I would never go do that. That sounds awful. And I find talking to people already and it feels terrible when I do it. Why would I go talk about it for a whole hour. Yeah. It, it's, it, it does not surprise me when people are like, no, I don't want to go. No. Well, no, no, I would recommend you not go do that because I think you're right. You have this, there's with trauma. I always say like, it's not like when people hear flashbacks, they think memories, it's not memories. It's time. Oh, travel. Yeah, that's right. It's time travel. Right. It's and your so five senses, your five senses, your smell, your touch, your taste, all of it brings you back into right. a moment. That it right. already knows. Yeah. And for a long time, I was held hostage. Like there were certain things that I could not encounter without hurtling back. 
yeah. to being raped at the age of eight, like, and being physically in that experience. So like, even today, like I can't smell wet cat food. Mm. I, ca- I can't, you know, I, I have to match myself yeah. for a long time seeing collies, the mm. dog collies. Like I, I, I would just start to dissociate and, you know, just not, mm. and, and it took a long time to get to a place where a dog could just be a dog and a flower right. could just be a flower. And there, there's something about smells that's harder. <laughs> well, smells um, are actually more viscerally connected to yeah. your memory. So, so that, so is, that is still on the, you know, given the right set of circumstances that can still really trigger me, but so much, I'm so much better than I was, but that's like, that didn't just happen. Yeah. Right. Like that was a lot of work. And so it is a lot of work. And, and what I was thinking about when you were talking about shame a minute ago, when you said, Megan, that sounds like it could be shame. And I was like, is it shame? I think it's not shame. I think it's not shame because I was an adult in my experience. Right. And so where shame comes from, which maybe everybody knows, but I can never say it enough because it's the truth. Shame comes from the, the meaning of the experience going rotten. So I believe I am a child. Something terrible happens to me. I have no words to express it. There's no one around to help support me with it. I have a limited cognition because I'm eight. Right. And so how I feel becomes who I am. I feel crazy and fucked up and dirty and miserable and whatever words are in those little trucks on my superhighway. and how I feel becomes who I am. And shame is who you are. Yeah. But when you're an adult between I did something bad and I am something. Right. And, and, and the problem with children is they don't really have the agency of using their big, broad mind and their perspective and their experiences just to do the reality testing. They don't have it. So they need a trusted adult to give it to them. No trusted adult. And we're sort of doomed, but my experience happened to me as an adult And so, yes, I had that feeling, but I also had the, uh, both were mine. And so I don't think it ever got in and like made me rotten in that that way. That makes sense. It does make sense. And I would say that all children are on the mountain all the time, all of them. Right. And so I would talk a lot in our workshops about how, when, when you are abused in childhood, your abuser becomes an unreliable narrator in your life, right? Like, so when we talk about in fiction, there's unreliable narrators where they're the one telling the story, but they can't be trusted, trusted. right? And so, you know, I was told by my abuser that if I told anyone what was happening to me, they would be upset, they would be angry and they wouldn't believe me. And in some form or fashion, all of those things came true. Yeah. My mother was very upset, understandably. So my father was very angry and he didn't believe me. And so when I remember sitting, we had a family counseling session and I remember sitting on the couch and I can remember the waves of rage coming off my father. And I knew it was not rage on my behalf. I might've been nine, but I wasn't dumb. Yeah. You know, I knew it was not rage on my behalf. And so in that moment, it was like, Okay. So Noted. it all came true. Yeah. And so, because I was at that point, nine years old, I did the math that if those things that he told me are true, then everything that he Anything. told me is true. Yeah, that's right. Right. And so my value lay 
in my body and what it could do for someone else, you know, that I wasn't worth defending, that I was rotten, that I, you know, all of those things, like I internalized those as truth, right? Like those were facts and I lived out of those set of facts. And so that's the thing about shame is like, it's never indigenous. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's always never. planted. That's right. It's always planted, you know, and so like any invasive species, it takes over and it covers like, so my entire life, even things that ostensibly had nothing to do with my abuse were rooted in shame. You know, I had shame responses to literally everything Yeah, because that's, you know, what I had internalized about myself was that I was fundamentally bad, you know, right. No matter how good you could make it look you were fundamentally bad. Yep. Yep. And there's no amount of shiny you can put on. No fucking wonder you were so hungry for the truth. You know, I think about this a lot. I think about, you know, traumatic grief. I think about grief and loss. I think about trauma and how unbelievably wired we are as humans to heal and survive. And that despite ourselves, we will be drawn towards things that are for our healing about halfway through my training as a therapist, someone said to me, God, every time you say you hate something, you end up training in it and loving it. (laughs) And I was like, what an interesting observation that I should use like Sherlock Holmes. And it, you know what, 23 years later, that is still true. That if I'm like, oh my God, that's a bunch of bullshit. No one should ever trust that. If I have a strong reaction to something, I am probably coming back there. Yeah. That if my, because that is who I am, I am a person that is wired towards healing mm-hmm. and curious and, you know, all the time that when I have a strong reaction to something, I am not done with it. It is not done with me. Right. And lo and behold, there is a nugget in there of something more true, more real, more accessible yeah. that I am constantly craving. And I, you know, I will say I I learned when I was in treatment, which again was only two years ago. And I find it really shocking. I had never thought of being isolative as an addiction, right? They hand you all these papers and they're like, okay, identify all of your addictions. And I don't have like a traditional substance abuse, but I got, I got some processy stuff just like everything else. And on the paper was isolation. And I was like, isolation, what are you talking about? And I brought it up. And of course the guy, all guru, like, is like, what am I talking about? And I was like, oh, fuck you. And then I really sat with, I mean, I asked a lot of people and no, no one would give me an answer, those assholes. But I was like, oh, there is a narrative about being alone in my experience that is so important to me, particularly in grief. Mm-hmm. And I am alone, by the way, everyone is alone, but the idea that that aloneness somehow means that, that you are precious in a way and not connected to the rest of the world is totally and wholly wrong. Yeah. And I was really, you know, that was a tool I was using to sort of help myself manage and understand all of my big, bad feelings. But when you are telling your story and there's so much that we can see because you're letting us hold it about how you got to the place of so much pain and how much the truth means that even when you're not ready to, when you can only be truth adjacent, 
you bring yourself to the rooms where the truth is being taught, that it's a, that's oh. a, a moth to the flame. A hundred percent. And I, and I think <clears throat> that, you know, it really was like breathing pure oxygen for the first time. Like it, it was like a, like, it felt like a drug. Like I felt like I have never been in a room where people just told the truth out of their faces. Like, what are they doing? You know, and how do I get more of this? And I think that, you know, for me, I, I had lived so carefully for so long. And I remember, I remember sitting there and thinking like that I wanted to share and I wanted to say something, but it was like this Cause I wasn't, you know, I was not committed to stopping drinking going, right, in, right. you know, that was just not a thing that was going right. to happen. I was sure no, I couldn't. That's not why you were there. But I, I wanted to, you know, one of my early meetings, I wanted to share and there was something in me that was like, okay, but if you do, you're not going to be able to stop. Yeah. And, and it took me a while. And then, and, and that, that bore out, you know, like where now it's like, I, but now when I'm in pain or when I feel shame or something like that, like my first reaction is I need to tell someone the truth right now. And for me, I think, you know, I, I know that if I had continued to drink the way I was drinking, that I would have died. There's, yeah. there's no question in my, in my mind. The body's and not built so, for that. Yeah. It had one trajectory. And, yeah. and so I think I know what, what is so, it's such like evidence of healing for me because my initial reaction used to be when anything happened, like when my first marriage fell apart and I found out things that were going on in my life that I was not privy to my first reaction was I can't tell anyone. Yeah. I can't tell anyone like this is proof that I'm bad. This is proof that I'm worthless. This is proof that I'm not worth defending. This is like, here's all the evidence anyone needs. Right. And mm -hmm. I've been like, so careful for people not to know that like rotten core of me that I was so sure was true. When my last relationship ended very abruptly, my first, first reaction was to pick up my phone and be like, I mm. need to tell Matt, I need to tell Mary and I need mm -hmm. to tell Johnny. You write so about that so beautifully. Because I knew that if I did not tell them in real time, that I would not tell them. And then if I did not tell them, I would drink. And if I drank, I would die. And so like, that's one of those things that shifts mm -hmm. over time, you know, as you do whatever healing path you're on, whether it's recovery or something else, you know, I think people need to know that those instincts that like are protected, that's the thing about trauma is that it's a protective instinct at first, right? right? Like me becoming a secret keeper actually saved my life in a hundred. It, it made sense. It wasn't crazy. It you needed sense. that back then. It made perfect sense. And so, but it'll destroy but, you now. But it will destroy you. Right. And so I think it's like a slow ship to turn around, right? Like, because that, that those pathways were carved over decades of me behaving in one way and secret keeping and, and not, not, telling the truth about where I was at or what I needed or any of those things. And so it didn't feel, there was nothing that felt good in that moment. But when I look back on it, I'm like, 
that is a sea change from where I was just five years before that. Right. Well, and so what I would say about that is, you know, for anybody who's listening, who's like, oh shit, I have trauma work to do. I can feel it. First of all, find a trauma-informed therapist. That means people who do body work, work in the body, not come in and tell me how you're feeling, but let's talk about how, the feelings that you are having in your body. And if you're confused about what that is, you can DM me and I will help you find that person because you will do more damage if you walk into a room with the wrong kind of people doing the wrong kind of work. But I will tell you, and I can hear it in your story and I can feel it across my body. When you begin to understand, I can turn this boat around, that there was a purpose for this story. You know, I always say it's like a well-worn path down to the beach. It made sense when my feet were that small, but I can get to the beach different ways with longer legs. Yeah. I don't need to walk that crazy little way anymore, but that once you walk a different way and you get there a different way. When you experience connection where there once was shame, it, that just, if you do it once, it makes it all possible forever. Well, that you so know, a, it, it, there it is. There's a whole yeah. new world. It hurts and it sucks and it's scary and it's terrible, but it's not as terrible the second time because you already lived through it the first time. And so, it begins. Itself. Yeah. So in recovery, we, we talk about in, in early recovery, like sober references, right? Like, so once you get through Christmas and you're not drunk under the Christmas tree, right. you know that you can get through Christmas without being drunk under the Christmas tree. Right? right. And so then it's possible. Like I always say, like that scene in Harry Potter, when he has the time Turner and he sees yeah. himself do something. So then he knows he can do, cause I'm such a dork. I can always bring it back. I love that. That's great. Harry Potter. It's the same thing with, so all of the, all of the things that were born of my trauma. So I'm a recovering alcoholic, anorexic, bulimic, all, all these marvelous things. All of those things served purposes. So this is what people don't understand. Like drinking was a tool before it was ever a weapon. Yeah. Starving helped me enormously. Like these were things that gave me some sense of control in a life that felt out of control. I don't know that I would have survived without alcohol. And ultimately it almost killed me, but before it almost killed me, it saved my life for a little while. That's right. Right, because I had no tools to manage the pain that I was in and I was in pain all the time and I was terrified all the time. And alcohol, here's the thing, works. It does work. It works, right? It just- and so, so, you know, I always say like, it's an, a knife is a knife is a knife, whether, you know, use it as a tool or a weapon, like alcohol itself is neutral. And I use it as a tool right up until it almost killed me. But, but so these things are really hard to get people to let go of. These behaviors are hard to let have people let go of because it served a purpose. Yeah. Like it, yeah. it wasn't for nothing. They're, they're, they're you know, the reason why people drink and do drugs and starve and, you know, all of those things, they work. There's the kind of therapy that I do and, and people who listen to my podcast have heard this before, but it's called IFS work. It's Dick Schwartz. It's internal family systems. If you've seen the movie inside out, that's what it's about. But essentially, I mean, some of the most deep trauma work that I do with people who have active addiction addictions is to pay homage to the caretaking that that addiction is meant to do when you're in the rooms. And I have tremendous respect for the rooms. Often what you're told is you are an alcoholic 
And I think it is more grace-filled language to say you have a strong addict part that comes in, whether you want it to or not, like a, a bully sometimes to manage this situation because it doesn't trust that your system has anything else. And right. we need to train up the bench so that you have other ways of coping with this that's going on inside your system that the addict is like, I got it. I got it. I am going to take care of this. And I think in trauma work, again, if we were to say being able to integrate all of our parts with love, including the things that we do, you know, I want to interrupt myself and say to anyone who's listening, you know, you don't need to have been drunk for four years, been bulimic for seven years, cut yourself, crashed your car, not spoken to your mother. You don't have to have a dramatic story to be worthy of healing. And I just am saying that because I get that a lot. Like, well, I it, it isn't as crazy as that story. If you're right. listening to the podcast and hearing people talking about the truth, saving their lives and that, you know, sometimes you have to fall down the mountain face and that sounds good to you. Then there's your invitation. That's enough of an invitation that you want healing. Let's get you some healing. And I think in grief and loss work, you know, I know that part of the reason my mother's death, particularly my mother's death, you know, my dad's death was two years before that part of part, what I know about that is that it was traumatic because I had totally unresolved trauma around a death in my childhood. Mm. And so in some ways, my mother's death and the absolute devastation, I had to leave my family. I had to do intensive care, allowed me, gave me a permission slip to go back to something that I didn't otherwise ever have any skills to do back then, way back then, because trauma is held in our body. So I just, I want people to know and hear that when we are talking about healing, we're talking about healing the whole system, the whole thing. We're not just saying, we don't want you to drink anymore. That's just like one piece of what's going on. And, and the, the notion is we are all worthy of healing. Like we are all worthy of healing. Yep. And trauma doesn't look the same on all of us and neither does healing. And so I think, you know, when Mary and I first started doing a lot of public speaking about, you know, our story and telling our story, we would have a lot of people say, well, what happened to me wasn't as bad as what happened to you. That's right. Or, you know, like he only did this to me or I only, and it was only one time. And, you know, in recovery, we, we say, identify, don't compare. Yeah, right. Don't so compare. like, I, I refuse to engage in the hardship Olympics. Mm-hmm. I don't need to have out suffered you. And no. you don't need to have out suffered me like that. That is not the, that's so unhelpful to, to, to engage in that. And I think that, you know, if you're in, if you're in pain and you need healing, there's no time like the present. It doesn't have to get worse to like measure up to someone else's rock bottom or someone else's, you know, despair. I, I, I think it's really harmful when we, when we sort of like try to yardstick our, our pain or loss or grief or whatever. I think that we all have, we all have different life experiences. We all have different coping mechanisms. We grew up in different families of origin. And so like what might not be devastating to one person might have someone else on the floor. And that doesn't mean that one person is stronger than the other. It means like we all have different 
different stuff. Like when I, I always say like, when I used to teach art, I would tell my students, you and I never stand in front of the same painting, mm. right? Ever, because I bring my whole life to that painting and you bring your whole life to that painting. Mm -hmm. And so we can both stand in front of Picasso and I can think it's brilliant and you can think it's crap and we're both right. That's right. You know? And, and it's the same thing with these, these stories of pain and harm and grief and loss is that like, I can have lost a partner and you can have lost a partner. And those two experiences can actually bear no similarity to That's one right. another in the way that, that they're felt or processed or healed from or whatever. And so, you know, I love that. I, I love that you're talking about grief in all of its iterations and the different yeah. ways, you know, like I've, I've been doing a lot of like talking and learning and work around ambiguous loss and yeah. sort of that, like, so brutal losing things that are still here. Yeah. You know, that, that for me has been a lot of my grief has been ambiguous loss. And I never had language for that until kind of recent, you know, like the last couple of years and, and really understanding what's so tricky about that loss and, and why it can be, you know, healing from that can look a little bit different. And, you know, it's gr grief is something that we do badly yeah. <laughs> in terms of the way we talk about it and deal with it. And, you know, like even in getting sober, there is a massive amount of grief in getting sober. There's grief in everything. You know, grief That's is true. the emotional reaction to loss. And when well, you are getting sober, you're losing shit or you are feeling feelings about things that you lost before. So I have to tell a funny story. So I had sent you an early chapter from my book because I was at that place where I'm like, I'm going to find out if this is crap or not. What did so I say? I sent you, well, so I sent you a chapter and then, and we were talking about me coming on and I was like, hmm, how am I going to talk about like, Sometimes I'm so dumb about myself. I don't even know what to do. And I was like, well, I don't know. and then I took, I went from that space of having like 17 separate docs to putting it all in one doc and reading it all the way through. And I realized, oh, oh my, my whole book. <laughs> Why do you think I asked you to come on, Laura? <laughs> Did I just get here? What's wrong with me? It's literally what the whole book is about. I think it's what our whole life is about. And I'm not even saying that facetiously. I think that we do a lot of supporting people around love, right? Like I talk about this all the time. Kids have like classes about puberty and their body changing. We don't give that same class to the elderly and their body changing. Why the fuck not? Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the grief that is on the other side, which is all the things that you build will also erode. All the things that you have, you will also lose. And the concept being, A, we don't make a lot of room for that. I, you know, other cultures do, Western cultures don't. But also, you know, people don't have to feel like they're reinventing that wheel because we can be in connection. And so when I say to people who are listening, like, listen, if you think that you have trauma and you want to get some work on it, please, please, this is, this is my invitation. This is my strong invitation to the party. You can always leave. If you get here and you hate it, we will not lock you in. But, but if what you're waiting for is, you know, some kind of deep level of understanding that you are like everyone else in that AA room or that trauma, you know, you can't really feel that until you start to heal the stuff, yeah. right? So like grief only feels like your world has broken apart 
and you can't, it is insulting that people are still walking to school and going to the grocery store. You just cannot even believe it, but it does not stay that way that there's a, there's a space from here to there. And a lot of what I try to do in this podcast is just sort of say like, tell us how you got from here to there. And what I'm hearing from you is a lot of your here to there was finding the truth pulling on the truth, hanging on, listening to the tug, learning to say the truth in a way that felt safe for you and didn't dysregulate you and finding other people who tell the truth and understanding that anything but the truth is dangerous for you. And what I have said is mine is similar to that, but it's more about alone and isolation that I spent a lot of time feeling alone in a room full of six kids. Mm-hmm. And because I was alone with my feelings, because I had such strong feelings and we did not talk about those feelings. And what I know is I want to double down on the slide to trauma and, and, you know, bad places. I let myself stay in that feeling alone. When I, when I text my best friend, it is so that she knows I am yep. trying not to go down the slide where I am the only person and I am disconnected from humans and I can't you know, function with the amount that I have to carry because we can, and we do, and we learn and it's transformative and it's different and it's different on the other side. But I also, you know, when I, every single word out of your mouth, I'm like, let's have, let's, you know, come on over, move in. We could just have (laughs) talk. And every person that I know that's connected to you also talks that way. And every person that you know that's connected to me also talks that way. So if you want in on this, this is the invitation. The invitation is if you feel like, oh my gosh, I have some healing to do. The people, the best people I know are the ones, you know, I have a girlfriend right now who's dating and she called me. She's like, oh my God, I love this guy. And I was like, okay, just give me the number one most amazing thing about him. And she was like, he's been in therapy for 10 years. And I was like, <laughs> that's amazing. When I was 20, if you had told me that I would have run away and been like, there must be something really terrible. But, but when we're talking about wanting to be seen and known and understood and held, we do that for ourselves in the truth and in the not alone. And then we show up and we do it for the other people. It's a rebellious act. It's the belief that like we are perfect as we are. Yeah. It's not an act of charity. It's, it's. No, a, I think it's, I think it's an act of defiance, first of all. Like, I, and for me, I know that. So shame was sort of like the defining thing for, for most of my life. And the very first thing shame tells you is that you are alone. That is yeah. the first lie it tells you is that you are alone. And I have a friend who always says, if there's a name for what happened to you, you didn't invent it. Right. And oh, so, shit, that's good. I know. <coughs> and, and so I think that that that's where that connection and truth telling is it's so critical because everything is harder to bear alone. Yeah, that's right. Even though like, I, you know, I always say my first response is like to turtle where I'm like, nope. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm that's good. And I'll, I'll figure it out. And I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. That's the way I dealt with everything. And, and that is so much harder to bear. And so like back to what we were saying, when you're telling the truth about your life, no matter what it looks like, even if it's just a text to a friend, like when I'm working with someone in early recovery, I'm like, if you want to drink, text me and tell me that you want to drink. Right. You don't, please don't pretend you don't want the drink. Cause how's that going to tell me you want to drink? You're going to find that when you tell me you want to drink, you're going to want to drink a little bit less. Like I, I've just lost my ability not to, 
<laughs> to tell the truth, which can be problematic sometimes. But I will say, before I started telling about the truth about my life, I was lonely 24 hours a day, 365 days a year in rooms full of perfectly nice people right. who had no idea who the fuck I was. Just gave me the chills. Listen, I got to let you go because I could sit here and talk forever. And why don't we live closer and we could just come over. Thank you. Love you. Thank you so much for this. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye.